Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I, I accept that our environmental protection framework needs to be uh, robust to ensure the strongest of environmental protections are, are in place. Uh, I support that. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. I just want those processes to be efficient. Uh, hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, who is the political editor of Guardian Australia. And this week in the pod cave, as we call it, I have Ben Morton, uh, who hails from the great state of Western Australia, which during COVID feels even more more than usually like another country. But anyway, Ben is a, a Liberal MP from the West. He is the Assistant Minister to the Prime Minister. Um, now, because Ben is relatively new to the federal political scene, I think we should start just introducing uh, who you are to, well, introducing yourself to the listeners, right? Um, so uh, so give us the 20-second version. Give us the 20-second Ben Morton story. Well, look, Catherine, great to be here. And um, I grew up in New South Wales on the Central Coast. I grew up in Wyong, went to Wyong High School. And uh, um, yeah, my motivation for politics comes from a lot of the lessons I learned in that community on the Central Coast in New South Wales, just between... Sydney and Newcastle. Um, yeah, I, I went to to Wyong High School, and uh, at Wyong High School, there was not not many kids that went to university. Um, I'm pretty proud that I was the first in my family um, to go to uni, out of a uh, family of uh, truck drivers, concreters, painters, um, and uh, and so I'm really driven by uh, the values of reward for effort by making sure that Australians are able to apply their effort and get the most out of that application of their effort. That's who I am, but. As you said, I'm a Western Australian now, and yes. um, I love WA, and I, I, I represent a wonderful community of, in, in Tangley. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't say, stupidly, um, at the top, uh, you are the, the Assistant Minister to the Prime Minister. That is that is your portfolio. Um, I have heard uh, the Prime Minister call you the apprentice. What does he mean? Oh, you'll have to ask the Prime Minister, but I did, I did hear that he said this, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it's quite strange. Um, I'm certainly no apprentice Prime Minister, Catherine. Um, uh, I'm the assistant to the Prime Minister, and I, I love that role. I enjoy that role. Don't assume, don't assume, but tell people what that job entails. Well, it actually entails anything he wants me to do. And so, obviously, the Prime Minister is a very busy man. Um, he uh, he, he uh, operates across all of the decision-making across government. Um, now, the Prime Minister has given me some specific portfolio responsibilities. One of them is to lead the government's deregulation agenda, which and I look forward to getting into yeah, today. that's what we're going to talk about predominantly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you're um, a pair of eyes and ears for the Prime Minister. Uh, you, you're, you're a sounding board. Um, you, you're a connector between him and, and other colleagues in the role assisting the, assisting the Prime Minister. So it can be many and varied. Um, it's, a, it's a role that I... Uh, 
yeah, I, I greatly enjoy. Um, it's a role that comes with an immense honour and privilege f- for me. And you guys are personally close, right? So uh, just tell me again, we're, we're getting into deregulation in a tick, but just again, setting you up with the listeners, right? So they know where you sit in the firmament. You guys have known each other for a while. You're personally close. How like, how did that relationship form? Yeah, look, we, we uh, uh, when I wouldn't say that we're personally close or that we had a pre-existing friendship before politics. Uh, we've been, been become close because we have a respect uh, for each other and we share um, the, the same approach and, and, and values and, and ideals. I met the Prime Minister uh, in 2002. Um, uh, he has supported me through my career. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and likewise, it's very, uh, you know, I'm very proud that I'm able to support him in his role as, as, as Prime Minister uh, now as well. Um, you know, it's really important to be able to, um, uh, you know, look at all of the issues that we're confronting as a nation. And this year has been a very difficult year. Um, you know, 2020, uh, not only dealing with uh, the bushfires early in the year, but mm. coronavirus. And yeah. one of the things that I think that's made um, the Prime Minister an absolute standout in the way that he's managed not only the Australian government's response, but uh, a coordinated national cabinet, is that he came to the Prime Ministership Prime Ministership with the background of being uh, uh, formerly the Treasurer, formerly the Social Services Minister, formerly the Minister for Immigration. And so he has that depth of experience across different Commonwealth portfolios, which has actually uh, meant that uh, um, you know, his decision-making and his understanding of the issues across the Commonwealth have, have benefited this country this year. Mm-hmm. Let's get on to deregulation, which is, as you say, one it's of very your... exciting topic. Well, well, it, Everyone uh, loves talking about deregulation. Yeah. <laughs> ben and I have had this conversation off air. As I've said to him, I am that nerd, and genuinely I am. Um, now, uh, you said uh, I had a look at uh, the recent speech you gave just just to just to limber my brain for this conversation. I'm sure most of your listeners have already read it, Catherine. <laughs> anyway, we're going to. This is an important agenda, which is why we're having this conversation, despite you know, uh, despite the self deprecation at the under, other end of the pod cave, right? So. Uh, this speech that you gave recently, like, I mean, time has sort of taken on a new meaning during the pandemic, but I think this was actually only really about three weeks ago, this speech. Your time has become very elastic this year. Oh, seriously. Uh, it's, it is it is genuinely hard to keep it straight in your head. But anyway, you said in that uh, in that speech that deregulation as a, as a cause um, is about helping to release the animal spirits in the economy. Um, I, I'm going to ask you what you mean by that in a tick, but uh, first of all, setting this up right, in the life of this government, we've had deregulation appear at various times. We had the bonfire of the red tape, famously. Um, uh, so it's, it's kind of like... I mean, it, it, the issue is sort of either it's weird. It's a weird issue. I wonder what you think about this. It's either hyperbole or nothing mm. in terms of the national agenda, right? So, so anyway, let's unpack what you think de- deregulation is and why it's important. Yeah, look, you, you actually hit on a really important point. And when the prime minister asked me to lead the government's deregulation agenda a little over a year ago, I thought, well, I've seen this yes minister episode before <laughs> as well. Um, and we've seen in the past that uh, deregulation agendas, they rise and they fall. Um, there's a lot of something or there's nothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's a mistake. That's that's a problem. Um, and so the Prime Minister has asked me to make sure that um, I look at the architecture of how government can ensure uh, that we look at how we make it easier for business to do business, but ensure that we actually maintain the protect- protections that regulation is seeking to achieve as well. Mm. And so... Um, the approach that I'm taking to the government's deregulation is where 
regulations do need to exist, um, what is the objective they're trying to achieve? Mm. And how do you try and achieve that in the most effective, lightest touch, efficient, cost-effective and timely way? Um, it's not about uh, you know, running wild, uh, impinging on everyone and 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 uh, uh, it, it's about it's an efficiency drive. Mm. It's about the efficient application of regulations to um, achieve the objectives they seek to to reach. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to sharing some really good examples of some of the initiatives we've got up today. Yeah, well, I want to I want to get into that as well. Um, you've uh, just another sort of framing question because uh, I'm interested in your perspective on it. Um, Australians like to think of ourselves as, you know, knockabout larrikins, um, you know, sort of plain, plain speaking, freewheeling, don't like rules, right? But if we look at us as a society, we do like rules. Oh, we, 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 we love, love rules. Okay. I don't. So, <laughs> but we do as a society, right? So I wonder um, uh, when, you know, when parliamentarians like yourself start talking about deregulation and, you know, particularly in the bonfire of the bonfire of the vanities, I'll call it, um, stage of this yeah. of this agenda, right, whether people are actually actively repelled by it because at our hearts we quite like rules, we quite like people telling us what we ought to do. So... I, I think that's the middle ground, Catherine. Um, I, I, think, uh, uh, I, I think that rules have to make sense. They have to be efficiently applied. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm in my late 30s. I'm actually 39, so I keep trying to say I'm in my 30s for as long as I can. But, um, uh, you know, some of the rules in relation to, you know, I remember when I was a, bit, a little bit more younger, um, you know, you, you had to be in nightclubs by a particular mm-hmm. hour and if you're a minute late, you weren't allowed in. Like they, I, I find those very hard to make sense of. Mm-hmm. Um, but... One of the things uh, you've you've reminded me of my of my maiden speech, and we're here in Canberra. And I, as I as I told you, I grew up in Wyland, New South Wales, Central Coast, but I went to university here in, in Canberra. And one of the things that I I thought I'd do in order to um, uh, uh, earn a bit of money, I'd be no good in the hospitality industry. I wouldn't have the patience for you know taking someone's undercooked steak back to the to the chef. So mm-hmm. I thought I'd go get my bus driver's license. Right. So I went out to Queanbeyan. There's a bus company here called Dean's Bus Lines. There is indeed. There is. And uh, and I got my license to drive a bus. Um, a bit unusual for a university student mm. to, to go and do that. My my I, my family's... Uh, well, you uh, said your family, do truck drivers? or Truck uh, drivers, yep. but I'm no good with knots, right? So there's no point putting me on a, you know, <laughs> driving a truck where I've got to tie things on the back. Okay. So you know, people just look after themselves. They get on and off. Yeah. Um, so I went and got my bus license. And then I had to get an authority to carry passengers, and when I put the application into the New South Wales Department of Transport for my authority to carry passengers, mm. it turned out that um, while I was young enough to get a licence to drive a bus, mm. I was too young to get the authority to carry passengers. Oh, oh, is that funny? And see, there's very little point in being a bus driver that can't carry passengers, no, you see. No, sure. And so, so, and so for me, I thought, well, there's a, there's, there's a regulatory um, design and implementation that just makes little sense. But what would be the rationale behind it? Well, uh, not for me to explain, um, but I had to overcome that. I wrote a few creative letters to the department and the minister at the time, and and um, you know, I eventually got my authority to um, to carry passengers. Oh, that, so they gave it to you? What no, they, I had to wait it out. You had to wait it I out. I had to wait it out. So I, how old did you have to be? Uh, look, you're testing my mind. I would have been, I would have got my, it would have been around uh, 20, 
1920. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what they did actually is to extend the ability of getting, <laughs> rather than bringing the ability of your authority oh, down, they pushed the, they license, pushed the license up to drive yeah, buses. They didn't right. think it was a good idea to have uh, 18 and 19-year-olds driving driving buses, but I was a pretty good bus driver, I thought. Um, I used to do the school run down to Michelago oh, yeah. uh, every morning and back up through Queanbeyan and then into Canberra. Oh, yeah, right. Um, a five-hour shift in the morning, and then back into university for the for the rest of the day, and that right. was that was my work done. Right. For the day. So you've you've had an early personal experience with the with the yeah. sometimes strange mystery of uh, you know of Kafkaesque kind of governments, regulations, and departments. Absolutely, and, and so I understand the outcomes that are trying to be be achieved, but how do you make sure that it's efficient? And that's why, um, with some of the examples we can talk about today, um, you know, I. I'm, I'm hoovering around as an assistant minister, working with ministers across different portfolios to say, what are some of the things that are just not making sense in your portfolio? What are the kind of things that, while you're focused on the big reforms and the big issues, that me and my team um, can uh, can more strategically uh, uh, look at? Give, give, give us those examples now because it'll make it more real for people. Yeah, no, well, look, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, and this came out of the... Um, uh, this 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 came out of uh, the work that we're doing, uh, where we called through the secretary's board process, which I should talk about as well a bit later, um, uh, for where we can make sensible changes to regulations. Now, if you're an international student, you can only do courses that are on the Commonwealth Register of Institutions and Courses for Overseas Students, um, CICROS. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, if you're an international student, um, uh, you can only do um, uh, incidental courses like infection control, barista courses or responsible service of alcohol or yeah. hygienic food course yeah. um, with community organisations and education providers that are on the Commonwealth Register of Institutions and Courses for Overseas Students. Mm-hmm. And and so if you're listening to John's Ambulance in WA or if you're a RSA-approved um, uh, uh, provider of short courses, uh, you might have some international students that might want to do your course, mm. um, but you also have to then be on the international um, uh, register, you have to be on that register. Uh, as well. Yeah. In fact, um, what you'd have to do is pay the relevant regulatory fees and record information on the provider registration and international student management system known as uh, PRISMS. Um, so, and, what, and there's no need for that, right? So, but you've got like if you're the business who wants to be on the register in order to get the international yeah. student business, you've got to pay them a fee. You've got to pay them a fee. You've okay. got to register, yeah. and it just makes it makes no sense whatsoever. These are for small incidental courses that international students may do, in addition to the course that they're approved for that they're doing on a full time basis. Mm. And so, by 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 removing that requirement international students are able to go along to a community organisation or to a education provider and say, well, I'm going to do your course that you're providing to Australians on responsible service of alcohol or, or barista courses or, importantly, you know, on infection control as well mm. um, uh, that will assist me in the work that I'm doing mm. uh, as well. It's So more of the education uh, service providers, those community organisations that provide these short courses now have access to international students without the additional burden and registration through the um, Commonwealth Register of Institutions and Courses for International Students. Like the the, the fee is a bit of a giveaway, right? Obviously, it's a revenue-raising measure which might be helpful to a government or two, but uh, but presumably does the protection exist or the uh, in the sense that, oh, God, we don't want foreign students exploited by fly-by-night providers who may not actually give them their their course. Again, I mean, it's it's not for the Minister for Deregulation to explain the rationale for, re- no, for regulation. 
Yeah, Catherine, these courses, these courses are already, um, these short courses are already approved for ASQA. Yeah, right. Yeah. For Australian students. Yeah, so it is basically. So it's duplicative. It's, it's, it's completely duplicative. Well, and a revenue raising measure. Anyway. Another really good example yep. is uh, if you're applying to be a childcare centre. Yep. Um, you have to make an application to both the Commonwealth to access the subsidy, and you have to apply to make an application um, to the to the state States government for well. your for your yep. approval. Yeah, uh, it is a separate application process. Um, one of the things that we've got through in our deregulation agenda as part of this next uh, part of the last budget uh, was that uh, we're going to invest in a single portal, mm-hmm. a single application portal. Um, the applications will still be assessed by the Commonwealth and state governments. Yeah, but through a single But location. they're done at the, at the same, yeah, time. same time. And there's some transparency there. So that will actually save 75% less processing time for those uh, those childcare businesses that want to get started. And we're told that it will save 5,100 hours per year for the prospective applicants. Well, this has been one of the reasons why I am really interested in your version of deregulation because looking at your first cut of, of issues, you've raised a couple there, right, the foreign students... Um, initiative, the childcare initiative. Uh, there's there's one about agric- agricultural um, export processes, which we can get into if you like. Yeah, sure. Um, but what I was quite interested in it is that, of course, there is a deregulation component to it, right? Like you're removing uh, layers of regulation as you work through these things sequentially. But what I found interesting and different to, to the previous iterations of this was you're also tinkering at quite a fine grained level about processes, like you just said, single portal. Um, there was like, uh, you know, I'm very interested in climate change. Yep. Um, guys who kick around the climate change area said the initiative about um, uh, that was, uh, in essence, making it easier to trade yes. carbon credits, yep. right? So the ACU system. Uh, like people said to me, God, we had been asking the government to do that for about five years. Right? Yeah, and it came through like, the government's deregulation agenda. Just, you know, invest in that little bit of infrastructure that makes that more user-friendly, right, but had got nowhere for years. And all of a sudden it turns up on this deregulation list, which I was really intrigued by. It's but everyone like, thinks deregulation's scary. No, but that's the thing. That's why and I'm interested. Not. Well, some of it is love, and perhaps we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> I'd love to. No, some of it is. I'm not scared by well, it. Well, I'm a little bit scared by some of it, but anyway, um, but... But it, that's what interests me, that you are coming at it from a um, from an efficiency point of view as well as a let's get rid of the red tape point yeah, of view. Yeah, let, let, me, let me talk about um, uh, how I saw DREG agendas in the past. And, and I, look, I can't pinpoint the exact time. This is, would have been some years ago. Um, but I, I recall there was a celebration of Getting rid of redundant regulation that's that's on 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 the mm. books. Re- how how mm. great are we? we we've got I rid of the celebration. Yeah. Mm. Mm. There was one when I was when I was younger where it was we've got rid of the regulation that prohibit that that dictates what time of the day livestock can be on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Now, obviously, this was a New South Wales government red tape reduction. Now, changing the regs or removing the reg that that deals with when you can have livestock on the Sydney Harbour Bridge makes no difference to business whatsoever because you don't have sheep no. on the Sydney Harbour Bridge Although, anymore. Well, they have had a deer in Sydney wandering about. Yeah, but not... I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, we don't have sheep on the bridge you anymore. You don't, you don't. No, no. So, so the, when I spoke to business, they said, look, can you please look at the practicalities of how we actually comply with regulation? How do you achieve that objective that the regulation's trying to achieve in the most effective and efficient way? Um 
And so that's the approach um, that I'm taking because that's the approach that business has said to us. Now, in relation to agricultural levies, for example. Mm, yeah, because um, you're the, really into that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, mm. there's 20 different acts of parliament that deal with the agricultural levies and we're bringing forward the work to bring them into one. Now, I, now of course, I should ask the question always, well, why don't we get rid of these levies altogether? And the industry says, no, we want them, but we just want to be able to comply with them more efficiently and effectively. And so that's part of the work um, that's part of the work we're, we're doing. But so is that sort of single touch again, like if, if between the states, because I, I confess I haven't looked closely at the agricultural things, yeah. um, is that is that the same deal? Like so you don't have to go to the state and the federal regulator? Uh, look, the, the, or... This in the first instance is looking at the Commonwealth different uh, right. levies that, that, that we manage uh, as as well. A very highly complex. Um, the You almost get to the, get to the point where... Uh, that the cost of administration of some things can sometimes outweigh weigh the benefit. Now mm. let's get the administration right and let's then put more of that money that's received through those levies back to the purpose in which they're levied yeah. for. Yeah. And that's 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 critical. Um, I did mention um, what I had heard from business about mm. what they want in their efficiency and effectiveness. And one of the things that I always do when I'm talking about deregulation is that I always make sure I send a very important message back to business. Mm. It's been a feature of the speeches that I've given mm, on has. this topic. Mm. Share with the listeners. Which is um, uh, businesses have to act legally mm. within the law. They have to act ethically. They act. They have to be a good employer. They have to provide good products or services. And if they don't, then they are responsible for the regulatory environment in which gets applied to them. That's They are responsible for that. Mm. And so I push back quite strongly, as, as I think you're aware, mm. that when businesses complain about the regulatory environment that they're operating in, it's a result because they've done something wrong. Yeah. It's a result of because Often. people in their industry or their sector have done something wrong. Mm. And when that occurs, the community rightly asks the Commonwealth and the government, whether it's state or federal, to do something about it. And the only things that we have in our toolbox is regulation and legislation. And the reality is is that that actually does reduce choice and it does put up costs. Um, and so um, uh, well, my, my message to business is, is be good, don't be bad. Um, don't, if, if you draw attention to yourselves, you're going to operate in a, in a highly a more highly regulated environment. And, and so you're responsible. Yeah. Well, if you basically like one of the, the, the main examples people would be thinking or would, would have top of mind, you know, the government in the in the budget um, released some of or, or rolled back some of the responsible lending criteria that that was imposed on the financial sector after the GFC. Well, yep. why did that happen? Well, because there was a banking crisis that brought the world economy to its knees, right, like a credit crisis. So it's, it's a point well made. And often... Um, I guess I'd augment it just with one thought. Um, you, you're correct to tell business, well, you get the regulatory environment you deserve. You're not quite so blunt, but I'm blunter than you, as you know. Um, I'm just trying to be polite well, today. It's <laughs> early in the morning. I get fired up after lunch. <laughs> you get the regulatory environment you, you deserve. Also, then business lines up frequently to you know, demand that the government do this, that or the other thing, remove this, do that, uh, create a perfect you know, uh, universe for us to operate in. They also do the opposite too. Well, A lot of them actually, uh, once they've mastered the complex regulatory environment in which they operate, oh, yes, they do want to hang it. on to it. No, no, no. They well, want to, they oh, want to well, hang on to it well, to keep a, everyone else out. So yeah. there's a bit of competition policy oh, involved in this as well. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that so much. I was thinking about the 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 
endless boring cycle of various interest groups lining up, demanding government do this, that or the other thing, then when the government does it, those interest groups are nowhere to be seen in terms of backing it in, right? But that's an interesting point, that regulation, it's kind of like... It's game theory, isn't it? It's sort of like once a set of propositions are put in place, everybody games the set of propositions in order to extract maximum profit. I don't mean physical profit. I just mean yeah. to profit in yeah. that environment, right? Yeah. So that's an interesting It's thought. a significant competitive advantage for some large Australian businesses. Once to have they've some mastered of these regulations. The, once they've mastered the regulatory environment they operate in, um, it's a barrier for entry for others. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the lookout for that too. I don't think that's right. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, um, uh, I did mention scary regulations, so let's get briefly to the EPBC Act. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise you were going to raise that. Yeah, I think I will because I know you've been very involved in it. So, uh, <laughs> oh, you, now you're being droll. Oh, yeah, I, am. I thought I'd give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't give me your droll face. I missed it. Um, okay, so the EPBC Act. You Obviously, you are not the Environment Minister, just to be clear with the no. listeners. Susan, Susan Lay has primary carriage of this issue, but I know you have been very, very involved in this behind the scenes. So there's a couple of questions I want to ask you about it. Yeah, sure. And just on that, on that first instance, obviously, there's no Department of Deregulation, right? Yes. And so my, my job is, quite rightly, um, to work with ministers across yes. different portfolios. Yes. There's, there, there's a suggestion... Um, around the place said, oh, this is this is terrible if there's, a, if there's an assistant minister responsible for a whole-of-government approach on mm-hmm. policy to be getting involved in things here and there. I've been working, um, uh, you know, on the on the program, uh, on the project you spoke about w- with um, Angus Taylor, uh, making it easier for private businesses to um, to um, uh, uh, trade in, in their uh, emissions reductions. Yeah. Um, with Greg Hunt in relation to Work that we're doing with the TGA and with David Littleproud as well. So this is a this is what the Prime Minister is asking me to do. I know, but do you give the colleagues the poop when you do it? Turn up and say, "Oh, how about this?" Um, no, I think I've got a very good relationship with with, with with my with my colleagues. And I tell you what, um, when we run through those long lists of things that we've been able to get through, whether it be in international students, whether it be in those childhood uh, child um, uh, early childhood applications. Uh, the money that we've put into the TGA, which is another really interesting story. Oh, yes. I meant to actually reference that one because that's yeah. really interesting and that's on the efficiency side again. It is, absolutely. So, yeah. so you know, the TGA is, you know, they've got some – I actually found out they actually use Lotus Notes. So, obviously, you don't go get rid of the TGA. That's <laughs> like – I'm not a – yeah, not a purist well, in that regard, well, you right? You could, but you it, could, but it, you shouldn't. It'd right? be a big call, yeah. Um, but what the issue is, if there's if there's an adverse drug reaction, yeah, um, uh, uh, it has to be reported to the TGA. Um, so medical businesses uh, will will put that information into a form. Yeah, they will then create a PDF. Mm-hmm. They will send that to the TGA. Yeah, uh, this happens fifteen thousand times a year. The TGA then take that PDF and they data enter it into their manually. system. Mm. They then have to manually, after they've manually entered yeah. it in, they then have to send the receipt number back to the to the business. Now, these things can happen. Yeah. Um, now, it was really interesting. I, I spoke about this in the chamber and Emma McBride, who's the Labor member for Dobell, um, she's a pharmacist mm. up on the New South Wales Central Coast mm. and Dobell was a seat that I yeah. grew up and And she said, Ben, Ben, look at this. She goes, you even can still do it by fax machine to the TGA. I didn't know there were fax machines. Well, um, you know, how absurd is it? Well, it's Um, not. So so this is an example where where, where our deregulation agenda is actually about the ease of doing business. And it's actually, in this example, um, what could, you know, what could be bad about the TGA getting quicker information um, electronically 
and being able to deal with that and see these patterns emerging mm. on adverse drug reactions. No, no, I know it's kind of so it's, it's not scary. No, no. Well, that is no. I mean, and the bulk of it isn't scary. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm not setting up EPBC as scary. I'm setting it up as deficient. Now let's let's talk about this briefly. Yeah, sure. Um, so. Um, just a simple question, obviously. You you got Graeme Samuel, you know, highly respected figure, bit of bit of experience in competition and business and all kinds of stuff, to do a review of this act for you. That that Susan set up that process. Um, he provided a review with a number of quite substantial recommendations, which granted would be quite difficult for governments to absorb, like having an independent regulator, for example, having national standards. Um, but th- there's none of that. No, the, the independent regulator you rejected on the spot. Um, the national standards are not in the bill that has been produced or put to the parliament. In fact, the, the bill that's put, been put to the parliament almost entirely replicates the bill that Tony Abbott put to the parliament some years back, right? So uh, there's, that just invites a very simple question. Why have a review if you don't intend to listen to its recommendations? Well, look, we just to be sure, we haven't... We haven't we haven't spoken about this question before this interview, but you've given me an absolute Dorothy Dixer. Um, so I, I know what you've said about it. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so, giving you the opportunity to to give the answer that so, you give. So, 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 so the government's approach is completely in line with Professor Samuel's uh, interim review. And the, the thing that I always like to make the point of is that his interim review was an interim review, mm. not a draft review. Mm, sure. He gave an interim review so the government could get on and take particular action. And I'm going to quote from his review today. I was suspicious that you might raise this question. So, um, and and the government, and not only the government, but National Cabinet has acted on on the interim review. So mm. what did Graham Samuel say? Um, uh, and I'll quote directly uh, from him um, in his interim uh, report, sorry, in his interim report. He said that under the current settings, devolution is inherently fragile and amendments to the EPBC Act are required to make them stable and to work efficiently in practice. He gained, and this is quoting Professor Samuel, immediate steps to start reform should be taken, focusing on reducing points of clear duplication, inconsistencies and gaps and conflicts in the EPBC Act, improving the settings for devolved decision-making, including issuing interim national environmental standards to provide confidence that outcomes will be delivered. And in, ca- yeah. in case we're just still uncertain, um, interim standards are recommended as a first step to facilitate rapid reform and streamlining. And in his press release, when he announced his interim review, he said, the development of national environmental standards should be a priority reform measure. Interim standards could be developed immediately, followed by an iterative development process Mm -hmm. as more sophisticated data becomes accessible. So what happened was that the Prime Minister and National Cabinet considered this report. Um, uh, The uh, the the process, which is called the bilateral approval um, process, that framework, that has been that is not new. Mm. That has been in the EPBC Act since its inception. Yeah, it was recommended for utilisation in the Hawke review, which was the ten year review. Yeah, and again in Graham Samuel's review, uh, you've got predominantly uh, the West Australian government, and now other governments will be coming online, uh, wanting to uh, devolve this decision making yep. um, to the states. And so when the Prime Minister, after receiving the interim review, went to National uh, Cabinet, uh, he actually, you might remember this press conference, Mm. he went in looking for first movers. Okay, Um, Graham Samuel's interim review wants us to get on uh, with dealing with this issue now. Um, uh, Who's in? 
and the Prime Minister was actually, I remember when he mm, came out of National Cabinet. Yeah, they he goes, all came in. Yeah, he's such an, well, yeah, he, you know, you know, overachiever. He came out looking for a couple of first moving states mm, and they all they all jumped on yeah, board because. New South Wales has got some concerns, but anyway, let's not bog this down with that. Yeah. But, um, but, but, the, but the point there, though, is that um, is that if you come back to what's my objective, what is what is the objective that regulation or legislation is seeking to achieve and how do you deal with that? In the most effective mm. and, and efficient way. No, no, way. all that's fine, Ben. And I've and I've heard that answer before, and I knew you would give me that answer. But I have a couple of supplementary questions, which yeah, sure. I'm sure won't surprise you. So, um, you, your answer to that question is basically: we're just getting through the first bit here, right? We we're, we're moving on, as Graham Samuel told us to do with the first bit. We're putting the framework down. Absolutely. Okay. So, when do you do the Samuel bits? Well, the government has to receive Graham's final report. Um, they have to consider them. But the reason why there was an interim report as opposed to a draft report was to allow the government to get on with the state governments in order to do this. Yeah, but the national standards are, they are quite, they are very important yes, to, to Samuel's framework. Okay, so so will you will you pursue them and will you pursue them in legislation? Uh, well, as 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 the the as Graham Samuel's report and as the Environment Minister has made clear, um, what Graham has proposed is both interim standards and national standards. Mm. What he's saying is that you should progress with the bilateral approval agreements. Uh, you should have interim standards in mm. place, no, no, and he's and he's saying that we should ha- and and so and we should have a. Um, uh, a a more robust process of consultation on the formal standards. Now, I think the environment minister has already made it clear that the uh, that the, there will be a basis of, of uh, there will be a head of power in legislation for the national for the mm-hmm. national and formal standards. But does uh, that mean you'll do them via regulation rather than by re- legislation? Well, look, like, what's the what well, is well, the plan? Well, that that's for the environment minister to speak yes, to. Yes, I, I realise this, what I, this what is I, inherently unfair, but I'm persisting anyway. What I, what I do know though is that. Interim standards um, uh, can be uh, contained within any bilateral agreement that we strike with any of the states. Mm, sure. uh, one of the little known facts is that any bilateral agreement still needs to come back to the Senate, mm. still needs to be considered by the Senate. Yeah. And so if the Senate doesn't like the interim standards that underpin a bilateral approval agreement, yeah. the Senate does have the ability yes, to disallow just, yes. the process at that point. Yeah, quite. Um, and, and so... You know, we we accept that we need to do to do um, two things here. We've accepted the importance of the of the standards. We know that it will take time to get them right, and we, we're working on what Graham has said. And Graham has said um, that uh, it's, you know interim standards um, uh, are the way to facilitate the bilateral um, uh, approval agreements that are that um, uh, that are required. Now, now the other important thing here, and this is sometimes misunderstood, is that. Uh, and you, and you might see more of this from me. Um, the Commonwealth can lift. The Commonwealth can lift the performance of the states in a variety of areas, not by doing stuff ourselves. Mm. Um, and this is one of those areas. So before the West Australian Parliament at the moment is an is an is a bill to amend their Environmental Protection Act. Mm. Now they have to amend their Environmental Protection Act to a level. Um, that will allow us to accredit their act yep. for them to do this work for us. Yeah. Um, now that's really important. So, no, so, so, so what well, happens there is no, that is it, that if if their if their processes in WA 
or in any state that is going to do this work for us isn't sufficient, yeah. they have to change it. No, and no, the no. benefit that's that that is a benefit. Is, I, I, I will, I will pay a, that. I, a, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that pay. That's no, great. No, 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 no. But there's but there's a but, and the but matters. Like then we get to the issue of what standards we are accrediting to, right? And that's the missing piece of this puzzle, right? So you are look. I'll just put this to you directly. You are, you are asking people. To, to take you on trust, right? We'll put the first lot of this through. We'll come back and negotiate the standards brackets that are actually really important later. Trust us. Um, that's a lot to ask. Well, and what we're saying is that is that Graham Samuel has said that we need to um, uh, we need to reduce the points of clear duplication, inconsistencies, and gaps and conflicts in the uh, in the EPBC Act. Um, he he is also said that the current settings of devolution is inherently fragile and the amendments the EPBC Act are required to make them stable and work efficiently in practice. And that's what the bill before the Senate Senate does. But that doesn't take away the fact that the interim standards that are being developed alongside this process, uh, they they will have, the Senate will have the opportunity uh, to consider those because Mm. if they don't like them, they're not going to be able oh, yeah. to, to, Senate, allow, I, to, to allow these bilateral that, approval yeah, agreements. I'm aware the Senate, the Senate can shut the door on you, but it's but in crediting your deregulation agenda and in uh, and in us having this quite lengthy conversation to allow you to explicate it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's another benefit I'm going to get to in a moment. Actually, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> but it's uh, you accept the trust point, right? I'm going to ask you one more question about this just before we move on, right? Now you've you you view deregulation through the business prism because that's your job, right? Yeah, like that, absolutely. Right? Okay. But but you also have obligations beyond, I mean, as a parliamentarian, to uh, to the community, yep. right? Um, and it's not all about what, you know, business wants or needs, although I'm not diminishing that because it's important to the economy. I've demonstrated my ability to push back to business too. No, so. no, no, exactly. Mm. We've had that, right? But the But the point being, Samuel was also very clear about another thing in his report, which is that the environment is in a very parlous state, a really parlous state, and we actually need governments to reverse that yep. decline, yep. right? So I realise, again, the inherent inf- unfairness of <laughs> of pushing you on this because this, that no, isn't no, actually no, your no. end of the job, No, right? no, I, I understand but, that. And, and but, do you, but do you accept that point, that the environment is in a parlous state and we do need governments to do something about that. I, I accept that our environmental protection framework needs to be uh, robust to ensure the strongest of environmental protections are, are in place. Uh, I support that. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. I just want those processes to be efficient. One of the other things, and I, you know, we could we could extend the podcast for an hour today, <laughs> and I can talk about it more. But what happens as well when you've got two levels of government involved in in decision making um, uh, that is concurrent? You lose accountability as well, mm. quite frankly, mm. and I think that actually no, that's true. That, 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 that actually no, no, is, everyone is a bad does. Thing that it, Sorry, I'm gesturing yeah, with it's two a fingers. Problem. Exactly. And if everyone could yeah. see me, I'm yes. kind of pointing in both directions. No, exactly. My, we're both chest, doing but, this. Yes, it's but, a, it's not a visual medium, sadly, but that's what we were. That's probably doing. a good thing for me, actually. I'm, well, know, good thing so. for both of us. Um, but, um, what but, was well, no, because like we're really on the clock now. What was the point you wanted to make a fish about a minute ago? Yeah, the point I wanted to make was that where we lift, where we lift. Uh, state legislation to ensure that it's compliant with the EPBC Act and allows us to devolve uh, uh, the, the processes and the work to the states. Not only do they have to do that to get 
uh, our accreditation mm. under the bilateral approval agreement, those changes actually improve the processes for all of those other uh, applications and approvals that are within the state no, jurisdiction no, uh, yep. that that that, that, no, that no, aren't covered by the APBC Act. I, so we can actually improve this you, across the country you, by setting the best possible policies and processes. Indeed, you could if you deliver and you haven't delivered yet. Anyway, I'm committed um, to delivering, Catherine. <laughs> well, I hope so. I've really enjoyed anyway, this. Yes, I'm glad. Anyway, uh, that's sadly all we've got time for. As Ben said a minute ago, we really could go on for about an hour and and. You know, we could, but sadly we can't. So we need to say farewell. Thank you, as always, to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni. Thank you also to Miles Herbert, who I gather is cutting the show for us this week. I'm very grateful, Miles. Thank you. And uh, we will be back next week. <laughs>